<clears throat> I, I know it's very old-fashioned and, and is considered even today antiquated to talk about conversion. If you talk about people that are converted, the world will immediately start to smirk and it will start to smile. And if you try to relate to others your own testimony of conversion, people will just smile benevolently at you and they will give you a bye. And yet the Lord Jesus emphasized it time and time again. He took a little child in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18 and verse 3, and he set that child in front of those that were gathered together with them. Uh, and he said to him, Except you become converted as little children, uh, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's very interesting that his teaching of conversion was an answer to a question that the disciples asked of the Lord. In verse 1, they wanted to come, these men that were with the Lord Jesus, they wanted to come and they wanted to know who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, amongst them, who would have the, the most prime position? Because they looked at the kingdom of heaven in a very temporal manner. They, they believed that Jesus was going to come and set up a temporal kingdom on earth, uh, uh, as it were, a revived, a revamped a kingdom of David once again and of Solomon in those glory days and they want to know well Lord uh, will I be ruler in it and who's going to have the top position in it Jesus knew it was a question they had already debated privately amongst themselves this was what the disciples talked about this it's amazing that grown men should talk about such things who's going to be the top dog who's going to be the number one position but that's what exactly they did talk about. And as the Lord Jesus went up to Jerusalem, that was their uh, priority. Who would have the top position? Now, in total contrast, the Lord Jesus <coughs> had just spoken to them. In Matthew chapter 17, if you turn back there just a second, Matthew 17, verse 21, 22, 23. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day shall he be raised again. He spoke of his humiliation. He spoke of his crucifixion. He spoke of his burial and his resurrection, and all of the horrors that accompanied all of those steps. And yet as the Lord Jesus talked to them about his death, they wanted to know amongst themselves. Remember this was a private debate amongst themselves. Well who's going to have the top position? Who's going to be the number one? And then their pride and, and then their the, a vain show, a vain exercise amongst themselves. Their desire for position was in total contrast to the humiliation of Christ. So in answer to this question that Jesus knew was being debated because the Lord Jesus knows exactly what we're talking about even when we think he's not listening. He took a little child and he set that child in the midst of his disciples and he said to him, you need to be converted like this child. Were they not already converted? Yes, they were. But they needed to be further changed. See, here we have a problem right at the outset. People talk about conversion as if it was a way back then and that's it all settled. 
But when the Lord Jesus converts the sinner, he starts the process of changing the sinner. And we're being changed. And that leads on to sanctification and that will bring us eventually to glorification. But Jesus took this little child. And I, I think it's lovely that there were always children about the Lord Jesus. They made noise. Of course they did. Sometimes they, they were noisy when they should have been silent. But he never turned them away. And he took the little child and he used the child as the illustration. And that little child was not afraid to stand amongst all of those other adults. And I, I believe the child was not afraid to stand amongst all of those other adults because Jesus was with the child. And boys and girls, that's a, an encouraging truth for you to take with you. The Lord Jesus is always with you. You needn't fear wherever you go or wherever you find yourself if you have the presence of the Savior with you. The Lord Jesus said to these grown men, fishermen from Galilee, men who have been with him now for nearly three years, he said, you have to be humbled. You have to be humbled like this little child. And in a sense, you have to be converted from this desire of prominence that you long for. And you have to take the lowly place as the little child would do. I believe that grown-ups still can learn a lot from little children. We all need to learn. We need to learn from boys and girls. And especially when it comes to this matter of humility and this matter of spiritual conversion. In heaven, in heaven, you'll never get there unless you are converted. And I would say to all that are in the gathering, even those who would say, well, I was converted 10 years ago, maybe 40 years ago, whatever it is. I want you to look at this little child in Matthew 18 and verse 3. And I want you to look into your heart tonight by the Spirit of God. And I want you to say, are you really converted? Or does God still need to change you? That would be the great truth tonight. So verse 3 touches upon this whole moral conversion, not just as a way back then, but something that's a reality today, something that's a reality here and now, and it's all illustrated uh, from the life of this little child. So what do we learn about this whole matter of conversion from the child? Well, we learn, first of all, about the need of conversion. Jesus said, except ye be converted, except ye be converted, this word converted, it's a wonderful word. I, I took time to look it up and it just means to twist. It means to twist something in a different direction. In other words, to twist it in such a manner that it's turned 180 degrees round the other way. And what does God in grace do? Well, he takes the sinner and he just twists that sinner and he turns that sinner upside down and he puts him right the other way. Conversion is likened unto being born again. It's that, that same equivalence. When a soul enters the kingdom of heaven, there has to be a change in their lives. It's as if they've been born again. Something that's happened, something that's changed them. Changed them from being born in sin to being born again and now in Christ. 
Theologically, it's good to be able to define what conversion is. That's why I love the, the catechism. We don't need to reinvent the wheel, brethren and sisters. All the great definitions have already been given to us by those of a, a previous generation. True conversion, the Bible says, is born of godly sorrow and issues out of a life of devotion to God. Conversion is a change. And conversion is a change which finds its roots in regeneration. Regeneration or being born again. And unless you know the regenerating power, the work of the Spirit of God in your life, applying the purchased redemption of Christ to your life, you'll never know what conversion is. It's a change. It's a change of thoughts about who you are. Who you are before God. Who you are in the light of God's word. It's a change of opinions. The opinion of, of man now is dethroned. It's, it's God and his word that's on the throne. These men, Jesus knew, needed to have their, their opinions changed. Their, their lives changed. It's a change that involves a redirection. That twisting, that turning around, taking the sinner and turning them literally around from the road that leads to hell and puts their feet on the road that leads to heaven. Conversion is a change. Theologians, they take this, this aspect, this change, and they, they divide it into that which is active and that which is passive. Louis Burkhoff, <coughs> Burkhoff still, the, the, the major textbook, I think they'll, they'll still use it in the Whitfield College of the Bible. This is how he puts it. Active conversion is that act of God whereby he causes the regenerated soul. That's the soul in which the Spirit of God has already worked and implanted that new life in his conscious life, to turn to him in repentance and faith. Passive conversion, then, is the resulting conscious act of the regenerated sinner, whereby, through the grace of God, he turns to God and repents and believes. Now, of course, the word of God is full of, of those who have been converted. There are many striking examples. We'll, we'll not take time to look through them all. Oftentimes, we just look at the dramatic uh, pictures of conversion. And, uh, and people love to bring to your attention the like of Manasseh. Wasn't his a wonderful conversion? He was a man who wrought iniquity in, in Israel as par no other king. Yet God met him. God saved him. We, we go to the New Testament. We think of men like Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a wicked man. He was a fraudulent tax collector. He, he worked for the Roman authorities. He made uh, back money from his work for the Roman authorities that he put into his own pocket. And, and yet very rarely do we talk about the conversion of Timothy. As a child, there is no one in the Holy Scriptures that are able to make the wise unto salvation. The conversion of Manasseh and the conversion of Timothy were very, very different. Conversion deals, as Martin Lloyd-Jones defines it, with the conscious life of the sinner. It's that initial step in the conscious history of the soul and its relationship to God. It's the first exercise of the new life within the soul in regeneration. God has put that new life in the soul. The first sign of it is conversion. The first exercise of it is conversion. I know there are many within the church and they think of conversion as only a definite crisis in the life. 
And that's why, uh, that's why many emphasize the dramatic conversions of, of Manasseh, of Naaman, all of those ones we could go into them. And yet very little is said of a little Timothy or a Lydia whose heart the Lord gently opened. Conversion does not always have to be something that is found in a crisis. It can be gentle. It can be a gradual change. Berkhoff said this concerning the timeline. He said, Older theology is always distinguished between sudden and gradual conversions. And he gives the examples here as in Jeremiah. Where was Jeremiah converted? In the womb. That's what the Bible says. He was changed in his mother's womb. John the Baptist. When John the Baptist's mother heard the, the voice of Jesus' mother, it says that the babe leapt in her womb. A Timothy. Crisis conversions, according to Berkhoff, and I, I, we know he's right, are most frequent in days of religious declension. Manasseh is an example. It was a day of national apostasy and declension. God touched his heart and saved him. And in the lives of those who have not enjoyed the privileges of a real religious education and who have wandered far from the path of truth, of righteousness and of holiness. We have a tendency now within the professing evangelical church, and I'm talking about the church in its broadest aspect. We bring people to give testimony in meetings and they take up the whole meeting. And of course it has to be some dramatic story. And we forget about the boy and the girl that's sitting in the pew. Brought up in the Christian home. Brought up in the Sunday school. Brought up in the children's meeting. And we forget that the change that is in their life is just as important as the dramatic change that is in somebody else's life. Lloyd-Jones had some interesting thoughts here also. This is what he said. Must conversion of necessity be always sudden? Is it possible for it to be gradual? Well, I would say that the scriptures does not teach that it must of necessity be sudden. The great thing is it has happened whether it's sudden or whether it's gradual. The time element is not one of the absolute essentials. It may have its importance but it is not vital. What's the vital thing is that the change has happened. There are some people and they couldn't tell you I was converted on such and such a day at such and such a time and such and such a place. But they know they've been changed. They know God has done a work of grace in their souls. They know God has turned them right around. But they just couldn't pinpoint the exact moment, the exact place, the exact time. And I think that especially applies to young children. And we put a lot of doubts and fears into the hearts and lives of young children. Conversion is a wonderful change. And I, I'm not, I am not of the opinion, or never happening of the opinion, that it has to be always something dramatic. It can be, and it is, but it doesn't always have to be. And sometimes it's something beautiful and, and gradual within the home and within the family. As children are taught the way of salvation and the things of God. It's needful. Let, let us not underestimate the truth of this. It's needful because of the corruption of human nature. 
All mankind sinned and fell in Adam's first transgression. We were all there in Adam. We were born into the world as sinners by nature. We were not born sanctified. We were not born ready for heaven. We were born in sin, shaping in iniquity. We were born on the way to hell. Children sin. Why do children sin? Simply because they have a sinful heart. They're born children of wrath, children of disobedience. Ephesians 2 verse 2 and 3, even as others. I, I discovered a few weeks ago a wonderful sermon by George Whitfield on Matthew 18 and verse 3. Of course, George Whitfield was the great evangelist of the 18th century, so greatly owned and used of God in these British Isles and also in, in North America. And he is the one who our own Bible college is named after. And he pointed out some important truths about the hearts of children. And I thought, well, we would do well to remember those truths as we come to the Holiday Bible Club. He said of Matthew 18 and verse 3, that it's a text which is a stronghold of Arminians and others. I'll not tell you all that he said about Arminians, but he didn't have very nice words to say about them. Some say... In Matthew 18 and verse 3, a denial of the doctrine of original sin. They state, it's implied in the words of the text that little children are innocent. Otherwise our Lord would argue absurdly. For he would never say that we must be converted and be made wicked creatures. That would be no conversion. But brethren and sisters, that is not a, what the Lord Jesus ever intended by Matthew 18 and verse 3. The Bible teaches us that children are guilty before God. That little one born into your home is born as guilty before the law of God. The Bible says they're conceived and born in sin. Uh, Psalm 55 verse 5, David lamented, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The sin is not in the conception. The sin is in the fact that there in the womb at the point in which there was that conception, there was sin. We, we read Psalm 14, verse 2 and 3. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. And what did the psalmist say? They're all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And then Paul took that up in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 to 12. You remember these famous words of Dr. Paisley many years ago, the four Roman nuns of Romans chapter 3, verse 10 to 12. There's none righteous. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. Now, that implies to all the children. None of them are righteous. There's none of them seek after God. Every child born into this world is born in sin. And it's not long before we see the manifestation of sin. What is sin? How is that manifestation? Well, it's self-will. That little one that, we, that you love and we all love. As, as covenant families, we all love them. But that little one, soon, very, very soon, even just in the pram, will manifest his or her own self-will. You want them to go to sleep, they don't want to go to sleep. Have you ever tried to put a child to sleep that doesn't want to go to sleep? That self-will will be soon made manifest very, very quickly. 
You want them to eat a particular meal. They don't want to eat it. We've all been there. Self-will. Selfishness. Do you think children are taught that they don't want to share their toys with others? Do you think mom and dad teach any child that? No, of course not. It's there by nature. It's mine. And I want it. And in fact, what's yours is mine as well. Just utter selfishness. Spiritual aversion to God's truth. It always amazes me. Even the youngest little ones can show opposition to the truth of God. God says this, but mommy. God says this, but daddy. Sinful rebellion against parental authority. Where did all that come from? It comes from a sinful heart. So when Jesus said that unless we be converted and become as little children, it wasn't that he was saying, as some Arminian teachers have tried to prove, uh, that children are not uh, equated with original sin as others are. <clears throat> it was a comparative term. Comparatively speaking, children do not have the coarseness of grown-ups. And we're not saying that children have sunk to the depravity of their adult day peers. We're not saying that at all. They, they do have an innocence in that they have not experienced the coarseness and the sins of life. But underneath, spiritually speaking, they need converting grace. They need converting grace. And parents need to see this reality. And we all need to be convinced of it. Else we might as well have no holiday Bible club week. If we all think children are innocent. And are just absolutely ready for heaven and home. Well we better close down. Because that's not what the Bible says whatsoever. Between the cradle and the grave. Sinners, whether they be young or old, if they've come to an age of understanding, they need to be converted before they enter into heaven. There needs to be that change, that twisting, that turning them from their present position and <coughs> turning them to God and to heaven. Let me talk to you a little bit about the, the, the nature of conversion. Conversion makes us humble, like little children. Little children do not have the aspirations to prominence that adults have. Their values are totally different. Remember the Lord Jesus uses this in a comparative manner to address the disciples who were arguing about their prominence in the kingdom of heaven. The Saviour is not speaking here about the spiritual innocence of children. But rather that unlike their adults their ambitions are less worldly minded. And they have a humility. Most children have a humility that's, that's missing in adults. Boys and girls can believe on Christ for salvation. And in all of my ministry, it's been one of the most humbling experiences to hear a little child exercise their faith and cry unto the Lord for mercy and for pardon. Can children really be saved? You know, I, I went along to meetings as a child and the ones that even taught the gospel in those meetings, they didn't really believe that children could be saved. But children can't be saved. Look in verse 6 of this same chapter. Jesus talks again about the little ones. And then he paraphrases it. The little ones, 
which believe in me. I take great encouragement in that. Boys and girls, little ones. It's a blessing to read that little ones can believe on Jesus to the saving of their souls. And little ones need to believe. And they need to believe in order to be saved. And if children have come to the age of understanding, and that age of understanding, I, I think it's different for all children. Children have different levels of ability and different levels of comprehension. So I'm not saying all children are the same. I'm not saying that at all. And, and we factor all of that into what I'm saying this evening. But if children have come to that age of understanding, little though they be, in order to be ready for heaven, they have to believe. In order to be saved. There are two elements in conversion. Faith and repentance. And great men have debated which of these come first in the order of time. <clears throat> and I'm sure this is something that uh, if you go to Bible college you'll, you'll consider there. And you'll, you'll get the right answer there. But I'm not going to go into the great debate. I think it's they're. they're Two sides of the one coin. Faith and repentance. If you ask me personally what comes first, uh, well, I, would, I believe it's faith. Because you have to believe in order to repent. If you don't believe there's wrath, if you don't believe there's judgment, if you don't believe there's a saviour, then you'll not know to turn from your sin. But I have read great men, who am I to argue? I couldn't stand in a shadow like, like Lloyd-Jones who would take a, a different view. The important truth of this here in Matthew 18 and verse 3. It's not the actual order. It's the actual fact. We're not here to debate those finer points of theology. Have you repented and then believed? Have you believed and then repented? Uh, the, the point of the matter is. Have you yet believed and repented? Unto the saving of your soul. Have you by faith as a little one. Of Matthew 18 and verse 3. Have you believed on him to the saving of your soul? We sang and emphasized that chorus earlier on. I do believe. I will believe that Jesus died for me. Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned away from your sin? Have you saw your sin as God depicts sin? Have you saw your sin as breaking the law of God under the judgment of of the law of God, knowing even as a boy or a girl, I remember even as a little one, being conscious of my sin and being conscious that my sin would keep me out of heaven. But have you repented of it? Because if there's no repentance, there's no conversion. If there's no believing, there's no conversion. And that's a sobering reality. Here we are in a gospel meeting. Singing the praise of the Almighty around his word and with other uh, Bible-believing Christians. <clears throat> and it could well be there are those in the gathering tonight and you're not converted. You might be churched. You might be under the sound of a Christian ministry week by week. You might have Christian parents. But it's an awful thing to have all of those privileges and still not be converted, still not be changed. By the wonderful grace of God. You can bring the wisest of professors to Matthew 18 and verse 3. You can bring the great theologians to Matthew 18 and verse 3. 
But it still all boils down to this. Except you are converted and become as this little child. You cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let's think just for a moment about those necessary uh, prerequisites for conversion. There would be no conversion <clears throat> but for the work of our mediator and saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the mediator between God and lost mankind. He undertook to represent his people and all of their needs. What did he do? Well, he did what you and I should have done and couldn't do. He lived a perfect life. Absolutely perfect. All the world leaders of religious world, of, of all the great world religions, you can read their histories and they doubled in this sin and that sin and they were, they were excessive and, and you can read all about it there in the history books. But you'll not read about one wrong deed that Jesus ever did. One wrong thought that he ever thought. One wrong word that he ever uttered. Just perfect. He lived that perfect life. And when he stood before Pilate, he was standing as the representative of his people. The first Adam stood condemned. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus, stood with the condemnation of all of the first Adam's sin upon him. And he stood there in your place and in my place. And he suffered the penalty of crucifixion and the wrath of God outpoured upon sin in the room instead of his people. It is enough, as we sang earlier on, just a little simple chorus, it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. If you believed, if you believed on Jesus to the saving of your soul and you can say with the Apostle Paul, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, I, I tell you, you're changed. You've been changed by the grace of God. There could be no conversion without the work of the Spirit of God. Just in his providence, he brought us to those catechisms tonight. It wasn't a contrived type of thing that we're trying to do tonight. Just providence of God brought us to all of these things together. And the Spirit of God, he takes the truth of God and he just uses it sometimes. Yes, as we, we said just a moment ago, sometimes it's used in, in a very dramatic way to awaken souls like the Philippian jailer just a moment before he's going to die and kill himself and God uses the word to save him. Other times, just like Timothy, that word's gently applied by a godly grandmother, by a godly mother. And that young man comes to faith in Christ. Do not despair. Do not despair, men and women, about the conversion of the lost because <clears throat> we can't convert anybody. We can't convert that. We are not saviors. We just bring the message of salvation. And we believe that there's a sovereign God in heaven and he takes that message and he applies it savingly to his people and he changes them and he brings them into his family and he makes them one with Christ for all of eternity. If the Holy Spirit turns your heart from sin, then he's changing you. He's changing you this very night. Jeremiah 31, 18, it says, Turn thou me. What a prayer. And I shall be turned 
for thou art the Lord thy God. Will you pray it tonight? Will you pray, Lord, will you turn me? Will you change me? Will you convert me? Will you make me one with Christ for all eternity? I want to say, just as we close out tonight, if we take this little child, I want to say to you in closing, never rest until you are converted. Never rest until you are converted. If the very whereabouts of your soul for God's eternity depends upon conversion, then that should be the most serious consideration in your life. Am I really converted? Is God really changing me? Not that I made a decision as a boy or a child or as a young person. Not that I'm depending just on a decision that I made. But I know God changed me. And God is changing me. That's conversion. Time is so short. I put up in the the church WhatsApp group. Just a little picture of the the Sunday school children here. Some years ago. I I was really taken aback when when I looked up how many years ago it was. March 2015. Where have all of those years gone? So very, very quickly. Time is so short. It's just fleeting. It's just passing by. And irrespective of how young you are, how old you are tonight, I want to address you this evening and say to you, are you ready to take the last step? Are you ready to take the final breath? Are you ready for the moment when God will call you? Because except you be converted, you'll not enter into the kingdom of heaven. What a solemn reality. In the same passage, Jesus spoke about the consequences of dying unconverted. Let's not trivialize this this evening. Verse 8 and 9. In the most solemn way possible, he, he said of those who are not converted, die without saving faith. In a God, then we, we, read, we read these words together, verse 8 and 9. It is better for thee to enter into life halter maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes. To be cast into hellfire. If conversion is a subject that causes people to smirk and smile today. Well then here's another subject. When we talk about a lost eternity. We warn. About fire. Fire that's everlasting. Fire the tail fire. Some will say you're trying to scare people into conversion. Well you know I'm not because I can't convert you. I know I can't do it. But I want to emphasize you need it. Because if you die without it. Jesus said. That you'll go into. His very words. Everlasting fire. Cast into hell fire. Don't smirk at conversion. Smile at it. Laugh at it. For except you're changed. You're lost. 
think of these children who will come in this week in the will of God. And we know they need to be converted. Every boy and girl in the congregation needs to be converted. But so do you. You need to be changed. And if you're not changed, cry unto God for God to turn you unto himself. And then you will be turned. And then you will know that wonderful transformation which only his grace and mercy can impart. If I can be of any help to anyone, I know we're waiting on for the prayer time. But if you'd like to speak to me about any matter, maybe further counsel, guidance, direction, I'm here, I'm always here after the service on a Sunday evening. I'm available. This is too serious a matter for you to, as it were, sweep aside for another week. You mightn't have that opportunity next week. You mightn't even have it tomorrow. May the Lord speak to you, bring you to himself tonight. Let's unite our hearts in prayer.